Suzanne Lyle, better known to her friends, family, and co-workers as Susie, was an extremely intelligent, thoughtful, and compassionate human being. Her interests in technology and talents for computer science were cut short by an unexplainable, untraceable vanishing in March of 1998, leaving all who knew her, both in life and through the World Wide Web, grasping for answers in a sea of evidence that drowned us all in doubt. Amateur sleuths and professional investigators have spent the better part of almost two decades digging theoretical tunnels and holding magnifying glasses up to anything and everything that might shed that one decisive clue in the ultimate reasons behind Susie's disappearance. These probes and perusals, combined with assorted observable evidence, have only created headaches more than they've solved questions, leaving the uncracked mystery up for grabs for anyone willing to tackle it. As a hope to provide a more substantial reasoning built upon observable evidence and situational analysis, this is an examination of the disappearance of Suzanne Lyle and the preceding mystery at Collins Circle. This is Cold Case Detective. Suzanne Lyle was born on April the 6th, 1978, in Saratoga Springs, New York. She was the youngest of three siblings to parents Doug and Mary, who hadn't planned for a third child, but welcomed Susie into their world. Susie was a quiet, shy, yet unbelievably introspective young girl. Growing up close to her older brother, Stefan, Susie would stick to herself at school instead of forming many social relationships. However, she nonetheless developed a deep understanding of human nature and wrote poetry in her notebooks, so passionate that she would jump out in the middle of a shower with the water still on and run into a room just to jot down her latest inspiration. This sensitivity and dedication soon bled into the realm of science and technology, where Susie would research all day and build machines and trinkets from scratch by night. In high school, Susie discovered her love for computers and by extension, the internet. As a teenager, Susie would form virtual friendships with other tech lovers on message boards, eventually joining a computer club in the nearby town coffee shop. It was at these informal meetings where Susie met her long-term boyfriend, Richard Condon, a fellow intellectual and computer whiz. Over the next few years, Susie and Richard grew very close. Even after he left high school a couple of years before she did, Susie maintained a romantic relationship with Richard, despite their age difference. In 1996, Susie finally graduated from local high school and attended State University of New York at Oneonta to officially study computer science. However, just a year at Oneonta proved to be too easy for Susie, as her coursework wasn't challenging her actual level of intelligence. To increase her studies, Susie transferred to the State University of New York at Albany, or Sunny Albany for short. Doug and Mary believed that Susie had actually transferred to be closer to Richard, who lived much closer to Albany. Doug described Richard as being very mature for his age, and Mary felt that he had been a little controlling in regards to his relationship with Susie. It didn't affect Susie's independence though, 
as she worked two off-campus jobs at local computer stores, including a Babbage's game shop at the local Crossgates Mall in Gilderland, New York. As time passed through the winter of 1998, all seemed normal to Susie and the rest of the Lyle family. Doug and Mary were happy as empty nesters, with their three children achieving their goals and moving on to greater things. Susie was balancing classes with work, a relationship, and of course her passion for computers. Everything proceeded smoothly, despite the occasional school-related stress, until March of 98 brought an unexpected gloom and doom to not just Susie Lyle, but her family and friends as well. Sometime during the years of 1993 or 1994, Susie meets up with her boyfriend, Richard Condon, on the internet and joins his computer club at a local New York State coffee shop. They soon enter a relationship whilst both in high school that lasts for the next few years. At various points through the next few years, Susie and Richard's relationship fluctuates, almost breaking apart during a few unstable moments, but never creating a hostile or harsh situation. In the summer of 97, Susie transfers to a state university in Oneonta to sunny Albany to engage in more demanding courses and supposedly be closer to Richard. Later that year, in the autumn of 97, Susie supplements her income with a couple of jobs. Not long after the turn of the new year in winter of 98, Susie tells an anonymous co-worker at the mall that she feels as if she's being stalked by someone she doesn't recognize. Susie shows little fear or anxiety, despite the hunch, and never reveals further details to either the co-worker or her family. On Valentine's Day, Susie's mother, Mary, drives her to Richard's house in the afternoon for a quick stop. Mary theorizes that Susie was delivering a Dear John letter as preparation for a final breakup. She concludes that Susie's tension increased as a result of seeing someone else. Who this someone could be was unknown. Throughout the remaining days of February 1998, Susie goes to work at Babbage's under immense stress from upcoming exams, often appearing uptight and in a variety of moods around her boss at the shop. On March the 1st of that year, Mary talks to Susie for the last time. Mary recalls Susie being concerned about her finances and waiting for the next paycheck to arrive. Mary attempts to offer a bit of money to her daughter, but Susie declines the proposal. On the morning of March the 2nd, Susie completes the big exam she had been anxious about in the preceding weeks. Either right before or right after the exam, on the same fateful day, Susie withdraws her usual $20 from an ATM machine, located near the bus terminal at Collins Circle, the normal stop for Susie before she leaves for work. Later in the afternoon, on the 2nd, Susie makes another uncharacteristic ATM withdrawal, at about the same time her shift at Babbage's starts in Crossgate Mall, at a machine located near the store, again in the amount of $20. Moments later, when Susie actually clocks in for work at 4pm, she appears more like her average self, much calmer than she had been in the months of February, at least according to her manager. At about 8pm on the 2nd, the manager of Babbage's leaves for the day, leaving Susie to finish up her shift per usual. Everything is how it should be, but unknowingly to the manager, this is the last time he'll make contact with her. Around an hour later, at 9.20pm, a nighttime security guard at the back lot of Crossgate Mall cannot confirm with 100% certainty that he saw Susie Lyle leave the store, but does mention that nothing was out of the ordinary, 
even though the employee exit area was poorly lit. It's understood that at that time, Susie boards a Capital District Transportation Authority bus, headed towards campus, profiled by the bus driver at the time. This is the last confirmed sighting of Susan Lyle before her disappearance. After a 25-minute commute at 9.45pm, the bus makes its scheduled stop at Collins Circle. The driver at the time could not remember if Susie had exited, though a friend of hers claimed she saw her get off the bus and walk away. This would be the last unconfirmed sighting of Suzanne. The next morning, on March the 3rd, Susie's boyfriend Richard makes a call to her parents, informing them that he never received a call or email from Susie the night before after returning from work and couldn't reach contact with her. Just a few hours pass by before Doug and Mary contact Sunny Albany Campus Police to officially announce that Susie is missing. The campus police do not immediately react, however, and say periods of absence for college students is common. One of the officers attended Susie's next class to look for her, but she never arrives. At 4pm on March the 3rd, Mary has the idea to call Susie's bank and inquire about her spending history. The bank reveals that Susie's bank account had been accessed as an undisclosed ATM machine mere minutes before Mary's phone call. The amount taken was Susie's normal withdrawal of $20, but the location wouldn't be known until the next day. The morning of March the 4th, Susie's bank calls Mary again to inform her that the location paying for the ATM came through and was recorded by a machine at Stewart's Shop convenience store in Albany, a few miles away from campus and in a part of town rarely visited by Susie. When the mail arrives later on March the 4th, Mary Lyle discovers a birthday card from none other than Susie herself. It seems like a normal gesture, but the timing is certainly peculiar and a bit unsettling, as Susie included a note that said, see you soon, inside the card. On March the 5th, after attending another one of Susie's classes, in which she was unaccounted for, the case had become an anomaly compared to most missing college student profiles, and calls the New York State Police to assist in the impending search. In the following weeks, during heavy police investigation, Richard Condon is interviewed, but quickly understood as innocent. Richard provides an alibi for the night of March the 2nd, in which he was playing video games with another friend. Police also interview the bus driver on Susie's route to and from work, who says he remembered Susie get on the bus in the evening, and was for certain she didn't get off at the last stop at night, but wasn't sure if she did indeed exit the bus at Collins Circle. A few weeks of analysis of the ATM withdrawal also lead police to unrelated security camera footage of an unidentified man shopping at Stewart's Shop convenience store, around the time of Susie's account usage. The man was wearing a bull cap and jacket, and a sketch of his face was shown to the public, his profile titled The Nike Man. In May of 1998, authorities discover Susie's name tag from Babbage's in a parking lot on the sunny campus, 90 feet from the bus stop. However, it's never determined how long the tag had been lying there, and police recover zero traces of DNA or other forensics. Later that year, the supposed Nike man from the police sketch comes forward and cooperates with investigators, in which he is interviewed regarding the events of March the 3rd. His story removes any suspicion and is quickly dropped as either a witness or suspect. Despite endless searches and efforts over the next 20 years, no new evidence or leads turn up. 
The most recent development in the case is in 2016, when Mary Lyle teams up with local experts in detailed underwater mapping after she repeatedly felt odd feelings while driving over the Crescent Bridge on top of Mohawk River. Unfortunately, nothing of significance is reported, and the disappearance of Suzanne Lyle remains cold as of this moment. When dissecting the entire case, the most scrutinized and heavily referenced pieces of evidence are the ATM withdrawals and complete mystery regarding who exactly accessed the machine, with both Susie's debit card and the respective personal identification number. The most glaring detail with this case point is the time in which it happened. Somebody accessed Susie's account well after she was last seen. This alone makes little sense. If Susie was robbed and then kidnapped, why would the culprit wait almost 24 hours before actually using her debit card? It's been clarified that only two people knew the exact pin for the bank account, which was Susie herself and Richard, her boyfriend. However, while this seems suspicious on the surface, it wouldn't take too much coercion for a kidnapper or perpetrator to coax the information from Susie if she was held captive. That's not the only strange aspect of the ATM ordeal though, Doug and Mary Lyle were certain the location of the ATM at an Albany convenience store in a different part of the town was nowhere near the usual route Susie took to either work or leisure activities. It wasn't a popular place for purchases made by fellow Sunny students either. The clerk of Stewart's shop did not recognize Susie's picture and didn't remember seeing her on March the 3rd or any day prior. Police thought they had the ATM mini mystery solved when they viewed CCTV footage at Stewart's shop and noticed a suspicious figure who walked inside of the convenience store around the same time the ATM machine was operated under Susie's account. This spawned the Nikeman suspect and conspiracy theories, but ended up being nothing more than circumstantial theory and rumored racial profiling. Of course, the frustrating part about the CCTV footage and the ATM use is the fact that the cameras do not actually cover the ATM machine itself. Instead, they are positioned above the counter inside of the store. Thus, anyone can use the ATM without exposing their identity. This adds a wrinkle in Susie's case. Not only are we blocked from seeing who was exactly activating her information, but we must take into consideration that this location was used on purpose by the user. Whether it be a kidnapper or even Susie herself, the user might have known this specific ATM was protective of identity and could only be traced by GPS rather than facial profiling. In the grand scheme of things, the ATM controversy is certainly the biggest case point, but also a fruitless trail of conspiracy and confusion rather than telling us anything useful at all besides the fact that someone involved was risking their plan at 4 p.m. on March the 3rd. Since the day Suzanne Lyle went missing, the ATM conspiracy sparked up and her name tag was discovered in the parking lot near Collins Circle. Countless theories have been proposed across the internet and publications all over the world, trying to unlock the secrets of the seemingly unexplainable mystery. The most popular theory centered around Susie's longtime boyfriend Richard Condon, despite his alibi clearing him of any potential guilt or wrongdoing. Followers of the case stuck with their gut feelings. Many pointed out that he was the only other party to have Susie's bank account pin in his possession, 
and would probably be aware of a $20 withdrawal pattern. However, as previously mentioned, anyone could force Susie to share the pin under the right circumstances, and it wouldn't make any sense for Richard to leave such an obvious clue behind when people knew he would use the ATM at will. Because so many kidnappings and murders involved two familiar parties, Richard was an easy target due to his close connection with Susie. They did initially meet over the internet, which immediately drew red flags for Susie's parents. Doug Lyle described Richard as an incredibly intelligent individual, mature beyond his years, and devoted to he and Susie's relationship. Mary Lyle thought he was too clingy and a controlling boyfriend, always checking in on Susie in the evening and accessing her computer from his own, violating what most would see as an invasion of privacy. In fact, a few internet conspirators proposed that Richard hacked the Stewart's shop ATM from his computer to purposely throw off investigators. Regardless of Richard's perceived characteristics, Susie never outwardly complained of his persistence or overbearing personality. Police weren't ever 100% willing to give up on Richard as a suspect though. After a couple months of investigation and around the time that Nikeman theories went up in flames, police attempted to conduct a second round of interviews with Richard. However, Richard refused this time, citing he wouldn't talk anymore without a lawyer present and rejected a request to take a lie detector test. Without any actual evidence connecting Richard to Susie's disappearance, authorities took this as a sign to move on. Yet the same persistent conspirators, both online and in person, viewed Richard's later absence to be a potential admittance of guilt. In rebuttal, it's important to remember that Richard fully cooperated with all questioning in the first time around. Police questioning is not an enjoyable process and having to deal with a heated interrogation with an already established alibi couldn't have been very helpful to the search anyways. Polygraph tests are also incredibly unreliable and often inaccurate. It would make sense for Richard to fear that his own anxieties and nerves bubbling up during an interview would skew the lie detector test and falsely imply his guilt, a common issue seen in criminal investigations throughout the years. When one thinks about the point in which police went back to Richard, it becomes obvious that after the Nightman suspect fell through, authorities were desperate for a concrete lead or new suspect, and figured Richard to be a probable receptor. In the end, Richard maintained his innocence throughout the process, eventually remarried and moved on from the case entirely. A couple of other potential suspects were considered at one point or another, although both were cleared almost as fast as they were uncumbered. One of the suspects wasn't actually profiled as a specific person, but instead hypothetically drew up from a very similar case exactly 13 years prior to Susie's disappearance. In March 1985, another sunny Albany undergraduate student named Karen Wilson was last seen getting off a public transit bus one mile away from campus. Much like Susie's vanishing, an intense search bore no evidence or traces of Karen, leaving the case just as cold. When combing through other criminal records in the upstate New York area, police also came across documents from an anonymous convicted rapist who just so happened to be on the move at the exact same time Susie disappeared. However, upon extraditing the felon from Illinois back to New York for questioning, he revealed a solid alibi and was excluded from any further consideration. Another convicted criminal was reckoned to be a suspect seven years later in 2005 when a man named John Regan faced trial for attempted abduction of a female high school student in 1993. 
The kidnapping occurred on the streets, close to Saratoga Springs High School, just a short distance away from the Lyles' hometown of Bolston Spa. Both Susie's parents and investigators thought the similarities of the cases were peculiar, and attempted to question John about any possible involvement. Unfortunately, John refused to discuss any outside cases with authorities, and ended up in jail for his own crime. Police skeptically crossed his name off the list. One of the biggest theories churned from the mystery is one that many people are afraid to consider and do not want to discuss. The fact that Suzanne Lyle might have left on her own accord. While there is no explicit evidence that confirms such a belief, it must be considered in a case with no solid rhyme or reason. Susie was a very private person with little social interaction. She had her boyfriend, her family members and her co-workers, but that was about it, at least to our knowledge. It's important to remember she spent a lot of time on the internet connecting virtually to a whole other community. That's how she met Richard in the first place, so it's not out of the realm of possibility that she met others in anonymous message boards. What if she met a group of people that persuaded her to leave? While incredibly unlikely, there wasn't anything forcing her to stay in the Albany area. In the same vein, Susie's mother said multiple times that Susie was living paycheck to paycheck and specifically worried about her funds in the days leading up to her disappearance. Mary even tried to loan a little money, but Susie was quick to reject the offer. Another internet-related possibility was Susie found an alternative method to make money, or received an offer she couldn't refuse from someone out there in the web. If it were far away from home, she would most certainly need a little money to supplement the journey, which would explain the frequent ATM withdrawals both on the 2nd and on the 3rd of March. Everyone wants to say that someone must have coaxed the account pin from Susie and used the machine themselves, but because Susie was one of only two people to know the security number, it was Susie herself to make the withdrawals. Both Doug and Mary Lyle agreed that their daughter was a creature of habit and wouldn't venture away from her normal way of life, which on one hand explains the consistency of the $20 money orders, but also makes one question why she'd make such a drastic decision to leave home as well. It would also be very cold-hearted to leave without telling a single soul, but to also send her mother a birthday card promising to see her soon. On the other hand, it's more likely that Susie had a secret mission only she knew about, and was kidnapped, or worse, somewhere along the way. She very easily could have wanted to remain quiet about an errand or internet-related task, but ran into trouble without anyone knowing. This would still explain the random ATM usage and why she disappeared without a trace while leaving her possessions behind. The one argument against such a claim and the biggest wrinkle in the entire Suzanne Lyle case is the employee name tag found in the parking lot near Collins Circle two months after the disappearance. If Susie left on her own accord, why in the world would she or her kidnapper come back to Sunny Albany campus to place her name tag near the place she was last seen? The only reasonable thought is Susie dropped it off after departing the bus and rerouting to another destination other than her dorm. Considering the parking lot in which the tag was found is in the opposite direction of Susie's living quarters, some reports have stated the name tag found isn't even the one she would have been wearing the night she worked last. It's also peculiar that the clue wasn't even discovered until two months after she went missing. If the sunny Albany campus was combed by investigators as rigorously as they maintained it was, the whole scenario is as mind-boggling as the case itself, leaving most theories up in the air.
When looking at the big picture, it's nearly impossible to confidently give forth a solid conclusion regarding Suzanne Lyle's mysterious disappearance. However, taking everything into consideration, only one theory truly makes sense. Susie was taken by someone only she knew, anonymous to even her closest friends and family. This hypothesis stems from two major clues hinted at by Susie's co-workers and her mother. The co-worker revealed early on in the search that Susie had mentioned she felt she was being followed by an unknown figure, but wasn't worried, meaning it could have been someone she either vaguely recognized or wasn't even sure it was a stalker. Then Mary Lyle shared she believed Susie had been seeing someone outside of Richard due to a little bit of strange behavior and the crumbling connection with her ex-boyfriend. Both propositions are quite possible, and while neither can be confirmed, they would both play intricate roles in a possible kidnapping, and could easily be connected to one another. How did Susie know this theoretical person, the internet? Records indicate that police did a technical analysis of Susie's computer, but whether or not they sourced her browsing history or frequented message boards is unknown. Even if they did, it's not difficult to hide virtual relationships that aren't tethered to a physical hard drive. If Susie was indeed stirring something up with somebody she wanted to keep a secret, the internet was probably her only communication. Inclusion of the fact that Susie was incredibly gifted with computer science and a long-time internet user only legitimates this theory. She could have hidden this information from Richard, who had access to her files and took the secret with her. We've also concluded that the prime mystery at Collins Circle didn't actually happen at Collins Circle at all, instead happening at an unspecific location between the Crossgates Mall and sunny Albany campus. This conclusion arises from the lack of assurance in supposed eyewitness sightings of Susie after she clocked off work. The night security guard at the Mall said nothing was out of the ordinary in the back employee parking lot, and the bus driver of the specific vessel that picked up Susie on the night of March the 2nd confirmed that he saw her get on board at 9.20pm. However, the assurances stop after that. The bus driver never remembers Susie exiting the bus at Collins Circle, but knows she got off before the last stop. In addition, the student who claims to have seen Susie on campus at 9.45 the night she vanished, only thought she saw Susie and was interviewed an entire 48 hours after the fact. These wobbly, unsure sightings are too fragile to believe with certainty. In terms of after boarding the bus, we believe Susie met with her contact in the Albany suburbs and was either abducted that night or sometime during the following day. She was most likely meeting a secret lover or virtual friend, probably needing money to explain her random withdrawals throughout the afternoon, and then was forced to take out more the following day after the suspect showed their true colors. Explaining the ATM withdrawals on March the 3rd, the perpetrator probably strategized using an ATM without a dependable security camera and utilized the steward's shop hidden machine and out of the view of CCTV. We believe Susie was still alive on March the 3rd and was the person to actually use the bank pin since it had been entered in correctly only once and her usual $20 amount was withdrawn. After this moment, while under the threat of her captor, Susie's fate dissolved into darkness. She never returned to campus, as her tap card for the dormitory wasn't used after March the 2nd. In terms of the mysterious name tag found in the sunny Albany parking lot, we figure the true perpetrator discovered that was the assuming location of Susie's last confirmed activity a couple of months after the initial disappearance. 
So they thought of an item that would link to Susie, cleaned her work name tag, travelled back to the campus and placed it near the Collins Circle bus stop, all to try and keep authorities on the wrong trail. It may seem like an unnecessarily and extensive scheme, but the clues lack plausibility in the first place and fits within the ultimate findings. We are confident she intended to resume her normal life after the meeting with an assumed stranger, resting in the fact that she told her mother in her birthday card, see you soon. What eventually happened to Suzanne Lyle will not be speculated to save her case from the endless pits of inconsiderate conspiracy theory. Her parents have attempted the same grace, and through finding the positives of such a confusing tragedy, have managed to sustain laws regarding the time period state and federal law enforcement investigate missing persons cases. Young adults like Susie, specifically college students, have historically been mishandled when reportedly missing, and the Lyle's legal efforts have made their daughter's age group just as much a priority as young children. It's regular people like us who can help aid these programs and help fight the growing number of missing persons cases. We wouldn't report this if we didn't think it could help remind the world, spread awareness, and potentially help bring a new clue or lead to the forefront of the search. Until we find her, Susie will remain a symbol of inspiration and remembrance. It's important not to forget that before her case froze, she was a human being, a woman with a future in computer science and leader in technology advancement in the 21st century. She was quietly bright, with an intelligence unlike any of her peers. Her dedication to poetry and creativity sparked a light across all she came into contact with, and we hope that light continues to shine again here soon. Until then, the search continues as we push for persuasiveness and fight for answers to the disappearance of Suzanne Lyle and the mystery at Collins Circle. This is Cold Case Detective. <laughs>